Hi everyone and welcome to the Mobile World Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Today we're joined by Richard Benjamins, Chief AI and Data Strategist at Telefonica. Today we'll cover topics such as AI and ethics as well as mobile big data. So stay tuned. I hope you enjoy. Hi there, Richard. Thanks for joining us today. If I could just ask you to please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your job role. Yes. Uh, hi, everybody. Hi, Emily. Thank you for the introduction. I'm happy to be here. Well, as Emily said, I am uh, Richard Benjamins, uh, uh, Chief AI and Data Strategist in Telefonica, uh, where I mostly work on strategic things, yeah, new things that are out of our uh, business uh, practices for looking to see what's happening in the future. Uh, apart from Telefonica, where I work already for many years, I'm also the co-founder and vice president of a NGO uh, focused on the ethical and social impacts of artificial intelligence. Yeah? Uh, very much related to my work in Telefonica, where I'm also spearheading the implementation of the responsible use of artificial intelligence. I'm also uh, an author. I just published a book. Uh, it's about uh, dismantling the myths of artificial intelligence and its impact on our societies. And I'm also a strategic advisor to several uh, AI startups. Awesome. And I can't wait to talk about your book later. We'll really dig into that um, later in the podcast. I was just wondering if maybe you could talk about your job role a little bit more and what your day-to-day -day really looks like. Yeah, so... Um, I, I'm looking at the things that are going to happen in the future in the field of artificial intelligence and, and big data. Uh, not so much on uh, creating new technology, but what's going to be big in, in business and, and society. In that sense, I spend a lot of effort these days on how organizations and companies uh, can use AI in a responsible way. And we all know there is are huge opportunities in artificial intelligence. Uh, any sector, uh, any type of uh, activity probably will be impacted by improvements using this technology, medical diagnosis, uh, our spam filters, recommendations, self-driving cars, you name it, yeah? Uh, but on the other hand, uh, there are also some uh, negative, uh, unintended consequences of applying this technology at a massive scale. Yeah? Um, so what I'm trying to do is uh, implement uh, best practices and methodology to avoid those unintended consequences to happen. Yeah? I think uh, just to give a very simple example, uh, we all use our mobile phone uh, with a camera and we see always a nice little box around our faces. Now in the beginning of those, uh, that is artificial intelligence yeah? that recognizes what a face is and what is. In the beginning of those cameras, uh, sometimes a few, some people were recognized and other people were not. Yeah? And it happened to be that white people usually were recognized. Now, that's a behavior of an AI system that you can avoid and you want to avoid. Uh, but if you are not taking care, then you will find out it's too late yeah? with all the consequences of that. So that is part of my uh, role here. Another, another part where I'm very active is, is to share privately held data uh, for the, with other organizations uh, for the public good, for social purposes. Think about the sustainable development goals, no hunger, uh, health, uh, education, uh, equality, 
private uh, private companies oftentimes have a huge amount of data think about telco companies telecommunications company which uh, i'm part of banks insurance companies utility companies the big tech and actually if you aggregate and anonymize the data you have a kind of proxy of human activity yeah and in that sense this anonymized and aggregated data actually can do a lot of good yeah? you can estimate the poverty index of a country or even per area you can actually what's happening today uh, you can try to estimate where COVID-19 is going to propagate next or you can find out where populations at large are uh, are obeying the uh, mobility restrictions yeah? not on the individual level but at the group yeah? at the group level yeah? so those are all kinds of things that you can do with uh, privately held big data now if you look in, at, in practice how much of this is really happening on a daily basis and improving people's lives then very little is happening there are lots of pilots going on uh, lots of research but if it comes to putting things into production things stop yeah so one of my missions is uh, why is this happening and what should be done to do it for real yeah to really make it happen and have a positive impact on the world yeah absolutely and um i think it goes about saying that artificial intelligence and data have quite a big impact on day to day. But with a particular focus on AI, um, what are your main interests with it and how does it impact modern day? Well, um, I, I hinted already at a few of them, yeah. Um, one thing I'm very much interested in, and this is especially in companies and organization, is how to democratize this technology across the company. Yeah? Because usually it's the realm of, a few data scientists, uh, data engineers who sit in a team who do all kinds of funny stuff and interesting stuff with AI, machine learning, big data, and then they serve the rest of the organization. Yeah, and of course these are they can be big teams, but they're always relatively small compared to the size of large organizations. Yeah? So what can you do to uh, put this uh, the power of those things in a responsible way in the hands of all employees, yeah? all people working? In organization yeah, i say employees but it can also be civil servants yeah, working in public administration um, so i think <laughs> that's a very um, interesting uh, movement it is happening uh, it's not happening too fast but definitely something that that is going to be very important to really reap the benefits yeah, of this technology and that it doesn't stay only in the big companies only but it really goes across yeah, the, the economy now, that's one thing I, am, I think is uh, especially of my interest. The other thing is, I said, responsible use of AI. Yeah? What can you in practice do that organizations, uh, public administrations, companies uh, prevent negative impact from the start? Yeah? So we, I call it responsible AI by design, like you have privacy by design or security by design. It's not an afterthought. It's, com it's like part of the whole process. And... Um, well, there's actually very little practice and published uh, information on this topic. There's a lot of uh, information on what are the ethical principles on AI that organizations uh, adhere to, but there's very little experience on, so how do you make it happen on a the, on the daily basis? Yeah, so that, I think that's very interesting, very important. The other thing I already mentioned is AI for good and big data for good. How can you use it? to improve the world and then really improve the world and not only appearing in the newspaper that 
where you can say something nice, but it's just a pilot or a research project and really nothing happens with it. So really um, going all the way yeah, uh, such that it really works. And finally, uh, it's about, uh, because I'm from origin, yeah, from, uh, from the 90s or the 80s of the previous century, already working on artificial intelligence, uh, and nobody spoke about artificial intelligence in those days. I had to, a hard time explaining my parents and my family, my friends, what I was actually doing. Uh, but now everybody is talking about artificial intelligence. Now, as a consequence, there are a lot of myths about AI. Yeah, a lot of, uh, I wouldn't say lies, but it's like a half truth. Yeah. So, like, uh, AI discriminates or AI discriminates against women. Yeah, so it's it's very alarmistic and and because a lot of people are not educated, they, they read it, they listen to it. So that's something uh, I have to take care of. Well, one of my interests is really to help dismantling this kind of myths, and I always try to explain them in terms of what is what is true, so what is uh, science, what is untrue, what is fiction and what is opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, going off the back of that, actually, I'm sure a lot of people have these crazy myths about AI, but what is the general opinion of the public? Is it, is it negative? Is it positive? And if it is negative, can, is it possible for this to be changed at all? I think it's a, <clears throat> it's a, a mix of enthusiasm and fear. Yeah? And that is the consequence of uh, what we read in the press uh, and basically also are the science fiction movies yeah look at our science fiction movies uh, terminator hall uh, 2001 yeah. mac ex machina AI. Yeah. it's always about dystopian things yeah so machines taking over and then the humans uh, fighting against them in, in the end they always win uh, or almost ever uh, things like the matrix, we're not even aware that we're part of a big AI system and that we're being exploited. And of course, that uh, that is good if this technology is very far away. Uh, and actually, it is still is very far away, even though if you read in the press, then we're almost there. Yeah? So I think uh, that's again related to what I said. Yeah, there are lots of myths about what AI can, what AI cannot do. And because people have no... Uh, understanding or tools or not training about how to listen to that how to interpret it distinguish what is true what is half true what is an, uh, an uh, a lie and what is an opinion so that creates a lot of uh, fear and, and 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 even some activism eh? uh, sometimes so um i think how can you how can you deal with that i think it's by by training by explaining uh and not only explaining and training the masses, but mostly uh, the media. Yeah? And uh, of course, media likes to be read. So they try, they, they try to write what people uh, like to read. Yeah, it's the clickbait, etc. And that's a kind of visual circle. And that ends up sometimes in uh, very untrue titles, whereas the content is actually uh, of good quality. Yeah? So I think it's very important to uh, explain uh, this, and not only to media, but also to decision makers, policy makers, politicians, and governments. Yeah? That is of utmost importance to, to put this technology where it really belongs, not only in terms of, uh, let's say, uh, myths about uh, dystopian 
scenarios, but also about the opportunities, right? Because there are limits to what AI can do. Yeah? So you have, today we have what they call uh, narrow AI. Narrow AI means the artificial intelligence system is able to solve a very uh, narrow problem, very well-defined problem, but very well, yeah? It even can outperform most of people, yeah? They call that human parity. When the number of errors a machine makes is equal to the number of errors a person makes, then they say it's human parity. That does not mean that the, the computer is better than us, yeah? It means that in one specific task, like playing chess or like recognizing a cat in, uh, in pictures or whatever, the machine is better than some people, yeah? Or maybe better than the best, best person, yeah? It doesn't mean that uh, a machine has reached uh, what they call then general artificial intelligence. So narrow artificial intelligence is what we have today. General uh, artificial intelligence is what many researchers are uh, working on, but uh, doesn't exist at all. And in order for the science fiction uh, movies to be true, we need to be able to put in a machine intention. Yeah? So because some machines, they want to do bad. Well, in order to do bad, you need to know what, what bad is and, and, and pursue it. Yeah? They need to uh, have common sense, which they don't have today. They need to understand causal relations. Today, they only understand correlations. And that's, that's the minimum. Yeah? And they need to be able to reason. So we know we can reason about things we've never seen. We don't, uh, we don't see, but we simply we, we know because we have a, a model of the world and we are able to reason. Uh, machine learning today is not reasoning at all yeah yeah amazing and you actually make um some really good points there about you know the public's opinion and science fiction films i'm sure a lot of people when they think robots and ai do think of them sort of things which probably isn't ideal it's probably not what the companies are after um when they are working with ai systems so following from that can you give us some examples of what companies can do to avoid being unethical when it comes to AI? I think the question is very well phrased because what companies can do to avoid being unethical, yeah? So because it's about companies, it's not the technology as such that can be unethical, yeah? That's another thing that you often see in the press, the AI is not ethical, yeah? It's about companies and organizations who build or who launch AI that can become unethical or, or ethical, yeah? So what can companies do to avoid that the AI they use uh, behaves in some unethical ways? Well, first of all, AI systems are built uh, today by people, yeah? AI systems today, the successful ones, are based on machine learning. That means there is a lot of data and, the, and, and they learn to distinguish patterns, yeah? So if you want to... Uh, uh, use if you want to train a system to uh, recognize a cat you show it uh, thousands of photos of cats and thousands of photos where there are no cats yeah? and then the system learns to distinguish uh, what a cat is and what not but actually the system doesn't understand what a cat is yeah? it, it has no clue uh, it just sees pixels and if on accidentally on every picture of a cat there is a tree and behind the cat, then it will also think that if it, there is a tree, yeah, it belongs part of the of the cat. Yeah? If you uh, if engineers build uh, train a machine learning algorithm, 
they need they have control over what data is being fed to this algorithm to learn yeah so that's the first thing where people can have an impact on whether the outcome might be unethical or not yeah as we saw and as i said in the beginning if you have this camera with facial recognition you need to make sure that the training data is representative yeah, for the audience that you want to apply it to yeah? um, that's the first thing so there, there are many other things about algorithms but that's a bit too, too technical yeah another thing is what what companies can do is have a kind of questionnaire a self self-assessment questionnaire when an engineer or even somebody who buys the technology uh, simply have some questions about the data, about the algorithms, about what is considered, about what is not considered. And this process makes co uh, companies already aware or people aware of potential unintended negative consequences and that they could uh, avoid. Yeah? Another thing is to have uh, diverse teams, not only, let's say, white males, but uh, also women and from other cultures, etc that always helps because otherwise you can become stuck in your own in a specific culture provide tools eh? uh, many companies are already developing tools how can you detect bias how can you open up a black box algorithm such that it becomes understandable why it takes a certain decision and of course some some governance uh, in the company and organ in the organization what needs to happen if there are problems amazing and i think that um on the topic of ethics, it's it's a very important um, topic at the minute, actually, because of COVID-19 and because of the um, current climate of the world. Uh, I was just wondering, how have technologies such as AI assisted companies during COVID-19, and has it been has it been very notable noticeable? Has it been helpful to them? Well, yeah, um, AI has been used in several ways. And uh, I think some, some ways on, on a larger scale than other ways, uh, but definitely uh, there is this uh, hunt for the vaccination, yeah, the vaccine against COVID. Uh, I'm pretty sure that there are a lot of machine learning algorithms crunching all kinds of scientific literature articles to find new interactions between, between existing uh, ingredients and drugs uh, and uh, side effects, uh, etc. But you don't read a lot about it. Yeah? This is all in the pharmaceutical industry. It's highly classified information. Uh, there is some work on diagnosis uh, in the sense that sometimes people end up in a hospital uh, because of COVID and they take a, a radio, an x-ray. Uh, there are some uh, machine learning algorithms that giving the x-rays, they have learned uh, how to classify between. But obviously, it's not the normal PCR test yeah? uh, that's still done in a in an old-fashioned old-fashioned way so those things are happening but not at a large scale i think if you look at technology and ai specifically uh, what has attracted more attention are two things one is the mobility insights so this is aggregated anonymized data about how people move and especially with restrictions yeah? movement restrictions so how is this impacting uh, the country uh, transport uh, different sectors etc so actually we in Telefonica, we share uh, this aggregate anonymized, anonymized, what they call origin destination matrices with the European Commission, along with 14 other uh, European telcos, such that the European Commission can have a better understanding what's happening with uh, mobility, uh, but also use it to predict uh, what will happen and what kind of measures, preventive measures they can take based on data. Yeah? 
based on real data and based on very recent data, because this is data uh, maybe 24 hours old rather than uh, of last year. Yeah? So that's, that's been uh, seen quite a lot. Also, these, these same insights of mobility, they are uh, used uh, in many places as an extra input on what they call uh, the uh, propagation models. These are epidemiological models. They are called uh, SUR models of successful infected and recovered. And they calculate how a virus propagates in populations. Uh, and mobility is, of course, a very important in input to those models. Now, traditionally, this mobility is coming from the census information, or it's based just on how big cities are, how many people live there, and then they calculate in a ratio how many people would move between. Yeah? Now, with mobility insights from a telco network, you have that up to date every day. So the precision of how the disease will propagate uh, will be much more precise. Yeah? And finally, there is the famous uh, contact tracing uh, apps. Yeah? Probably everybody has heard of them. Now, I must say this is not related to AI. Yeah? It's just uh, counting and uh, it's, uh, it's Bluetooth and a lot of things to interpret distance, etc. Well, it has created a lot of noise and it's been used in some countries, uh, but uh, there are mixed experiences and there is also uh, unclear reporting. Yeah? So actually there's a lot of talking about when the app uh, is being selected or developed, but once it's in operation, uh, there's a kind of silence about the results. Yeah? Uh, Germany publishes some results. The UK has stopped it. The Netherlands will launch it in a few days. Spain has it in some places and not in other places. Uh, so personally, I'm surprised by, I mean, th this is for the good of everybody. Yeah? So why just not do it uh, as long as privacy is preserved, which is in most cases it is, uh, but still seems to be a big, uh, big thing uh, around it, which I uh, unfortunately do not capture at all. Yeah, and that's a lot to do with data, isn't it? That might be to do with public, maybe not having the knowledge of data, I'm not sure, it could be many reasons, couldn't it? But um, I wonder how has data helped in the past and has it? Um, for example, for previous global pandemics that we've had, has data um, helped these or is this kind of a new development? No, actually the, the, the notion and the knowledge that you can use uh, mobile big data for predicting pandemics is from 2010. Yeah? So the first article, scientific articles published were from that era. So that's 10 years ago. If you look at systems that are in operation today that help predict pandemics, that's only for COVID-19 yeah? and, and to a limited extent. Yeah? Actually, that, that is a shame on us because the knowledge was there. We could have be prepared much better. So my vision is to have uh, in every country at least one major operator prepared yeah, with data in case if there is an alert, uh, there is maybe uh, somewhere in the world, in a country, there is a very contagious disease, then immediately after the countries that are in contact with this country are becoming alert because they know it from this data uh, and they can then also do. And I think with that kind of things, 
you can uh, stop or at least uh, avoid, uh, prevent a massive propagation as has been done uh, in this case. So that's, uh, uh, yeah, a bad, uh, I think a bad uh, note, bad mark for all of us uh, that we haven't done that before. Having said that, uh, in the past, there have been very interesting studies. Yeah? So it has been done with uh, Ebola, with Zika. Uh, we were personally involved with Zika in Brazil in Colombia and with swine flu in Mexico. So swine flu was already in 2012, was a pandemic as well. And uh, at that time, the Mexican government didn't know what to do. So they started closing down shopping malls. They started closing down uh, schools. Yeah? Today, that, that looks like very uh, simple, but uh, at that time, it was really a big thing. But they had no idea whether the population was following up those recommendations. So we overlaid the mobility pattern we have with, the, uh, with the, uh, the, the medical data they had. And actually, yeah, we could see that in some cases, their me measurements were very effective, had been very effective, but in other cases, completely uninfected. Yeah? So in a sense, that helps the government to learn for the future, but that's for the next pandemic. It's not for the same pandemic, yeah? So only now with COVID, uh, governments are starting to do that, but they started too late, yeah? They started two or three months late. Mm. Yeah, and I think it maybe goes without saying as well that data has been has been essential for COVID and as well as some AI systems. Um, but flipping that on its head, has there been a big impact on data itself because of COVID? I think there has been um, data has has grown a lot in awareness along the large population. Yeah. I think we've all seen uh, the, the disputes about what are the correct data of uh, cases of a recovery of dead people. Uh, so if you count the, the deaths no, based on COVID, you get a number. But if you look at all the deaths uh, that are in this year more than last year, mm. across the board, uh, you see it's double. Yeah? So that makes you think, well, haven't they captured all the data, etc. So I think uh, disagreement on how to measure cases is something that has drawn attention on the importance of data. Yeah? Most of the uh, reporting of cases I understand in the hospital, it happens in the hospitals, is like manually uh, and there is a lot of delay in the data. Uh, here in, in Spain uh, you get a, an overview on Monday and they always say yeah but it can, this can change because the weekend eh, uh, was before. Uh, and then on, on Tuesday or Wednesday, you have a rectification, etc. So I think that is a lot of awareness uh, about that. I think it also has had another impact in terms of uh, privacy yeah, with the contact tracing. So the first contact tracing app, uh, they, were, uh, they came from China and from South Korea, and they were based on location data. So on your GPS, on your mobile phone. And actually, they were taken by the government without your consent. People were tracked in a, in a big database. And then if somebody was uh, positive, then all the people who were in that same location, they got a kind of uh, notification. Uh, it seems you've been there, uh, that person at that time, even at that time, or somebody was, etc. please uh, come here and check or etc. Yeah. So that has, that has created an enormous debate on privacy or health. Yeah? What do you respect more as a fundamental right, uh, health or privacy? Yeah? 
so it's a big, big discussion. Eh? Uh, this is everybody's personal opinion eh? about what they, what they value. Um, now what they have with the apps, the contact tracing apps in the rest of the world in Europe with the help of uh, Google and, and Apple is based on Bluetooth. So it's not based of location. So, uh, and it's a lot of privacy preserving technologies that you can never trace it back to a certain person, but still you can get the notification. So a lot of awareness on data, a lot of awareness on privacy. And sometimes I don't know whether so much attention is good because if everything was uh, explained in the right way, uh, then it would be okay. But uh, press, media, even politicians, they start to fight over things which are incorrect yeah they start to mess mix up personal data contact tracing and anonymized and aggregated data as if it were one and the same things and therefore it is against the law of people are not aware about it so that's really a pity yeah but anyway everybody knows now if they didn't know about data now now they know yeah, yeah and that's a good point actually i think maybe data because of the covid because of COVID, um, data has kind of fallen down to more of like a public level. The public now receive a lot of data and a lot of statistics that maybe they wouldn't have before. So I feel like maybe that um, is a bad thing or a good thing. I mean, people are maybe becoming more aware, but if data gets to the public level, then that's a lot more opinions, um, a lot more. Oh, yeah. I definitely think it's a good thing eh? because there is not enough awareness. Um, right. And that brings it to the uh, another part, yeah, which is the unawareness of people uh, and the naiveness, right. uh, naivety of people to share data uh, wherever they go, uh, in all kinds of platforms. And they're not aware what's happening with their data. And and I don't know if you have seen the uh, social dilemma. Yeah, I have. Of, yeah, of I have. Netflix. Well, yeah. Uh, it, it's of course a bit alarmistic, mm -hmm. uh, but there is a lot of, in my opinion, there's a lot of truth in uh, yeah. what they are saying. Yeah. So this is something like you can call it unintended consequence consequences in the beginning, uh, because they of course they couldn't foresee how this was going, but now they know. Yeah. Mm. So uh, from a business, it's a very complicated situation uh, to be in. Yeah, I can imagine. I remember when I watched that documentary, um, it was a little bit scary. <laughs> like you, so you, you, I like to think I'm a bit tech savvy and I kind of know a little bit about data, but it, it's, it is scary for maybe the public sometimes, but I think it's really important that we do know what happens, and that we're aware about data. Um, so following from that, what do you think are the advantages of mobile big data? Well, I think we've seen the, the big advantages uh, we've seen. Yeah? Uh, if you look at, uh, it is a proxy for humanity. Yeah? It's a proxy for movement of, of groups of, of people. Uh, and you can solve a lot of problems with that. Yeah? Where currently, so, such data is not available. So much of the mobility insights today are coming from the census. Yeah? Now, census is a huge undertaking in every country and in many countries uh, in let's say low income and middle income countries census may be done once every 20 years now if they have to find out where to uh, uh, yeah 
what is the accessibility of healthcare, yeah? how to redesign the, the health system or the educational system. And they based it on data from 15 years ago because they have nothing else. Now, there's a lot of inefficiency there. Yeah? Uh, on, the, on, the, on the other hand, uh, all people, even in low income countries, have mobile phones. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So from that data, and again, I have to stress anonymized and aggregated, uh, so it's not personal data, it gives a proxy of statistics, yeah? And, uh, and that is very valuable for all kinds of uh, helping achieving sustainable development goals. That's the good thing of mobile big data. Actually, in the, the GSMA, which is the, uh, the association yeah, of uh, mobile, uh, mobile network operators, has a specific group, it's called AI for Good. I'm part of the group that uh, work only on those kind of use cases. How can we use aggregated, anonymized, mobile big data to solve big problems in the world? Yeah? And really dealing with the challenge of making it happen for real yeah? and not staying at the, at the research level. So, and then you also asked about the challenges. Yeah? Now, so there are many opportunities. So what are the challenges? Well, the main challenges is and I actually mentioned the consequence of the challenge, and that is we only have research and pilots. We don't have any systems. And that's because there, this, is con this is considered as philanthropy. So if you talk to, uh, as a company, you talk to United Nations, to UNICEF, to the World Bank, who else who could help in, in solving these problems, they are expecting this to be a gift from companies, yeah? And companies are happy to do that for a certain period of time because they also get benefit from it. It's good for their social responsibility to, to not only think about financial yeah, targets, but also about non-financial targets, but there is a limit. Yeah? A company will do that. It might invest several uh, hundred thousand euros, etc. But if it has to put into operation a system that runs every day, it needs a team and infrastructure, it needs a budget, etc. So this goes beyond philanthropy. And that's one of the main challenges of this because uh, there is no a sustainable financial model to make this happen. And I think that is one of the, the biggest reasons that it's not yet happening today. Yeah? It's not a business. Nobody is willing to pay for it, uh, even though everybody understands that it can solve big problems. So that's a kind of inconsistency that uh, I am figuring out yeah, with a lot of other people how to break that. Uh, uh, even what we now do with the European Commission, uh, uh, where 15 operators share uh, pro bono all kinds of insights uh the european commission even they even though they have a 750 billion fund they say sorry we have no budget yeah? so that kind of inconsistency is uh, is the state of play and i'm sure that this crisis now is going to help to break it yeah? but it, it will take some time so that's one of the challenges the other challenges is privacy mm. the privacy confusion and privacy for real uh, so how do you balance? If you have to infringe a little bit of privacy to solve a big problem, where do you put the balance? Yeah? And uh, it's also privacy in the sense of, okay, I can give this data to a government now. Now it's a good government, but maybe tomorrow it's a bad government. So what will it do with this data? Even though it's not personal data, it might do all kinds of things which are not so fun. So this ethical question is beyond privacy uh, is a very tough question yeah so and and if you do in the western world 
mostly the mostly uh, strong democracies yeah not all of them so what do you do with a democracy that's not so strong if you go to other parts of the world the commercial um, maybe there is there's a huge problem eh? a societal problem but there is a very bad government from a democracy perspective so what do you do eh? how do you avoid that this government is later abusing this etc so these are very big uh, big challenges eh? and very much related to ethics human rights uh, etc amazing and i think like um the value of data is really important there data is such a big deal and i'm just wondering if if these are topics that you talk about in your book because also we did mention um you did mention you're an author and you have um two books and if you'd like to just discuss them okay <clears throat> So the first book, the first book is actually in Spanish. Eh? It's not. <laughs> I'm trying to have it tra translated uh, with an uh, English publisher. Uh, I'm from the Netherlands, so I'm neither uh, neither native in Spanish, neither in English. Uh, so the first book in Spanish, and it's called "The Myth of the Algorithm," yeah? and it's a subtitle said "Tales and Truths of Artificial Intelligence." So basically, what the book uh, discusses is for eight important problems in the world. And you can think about uh, privacy, autonomous decisions by machine, private, uh, uh, defense and artificial intelligence, the future of work, uh, singularity, collaboration or competition between man and machine, uh, emotions, etc. So those eight areas, we dismantle the current thinking in uh, science, fiction, an opinion yeah? and then we count with the opinion and this is opinion yeah of like uh, 25 international experts which give their view which can be inconsistent with our view yeah? and they can even be inconsistent between them uh, but they they shine their light on what uh, on those on those topics yeah and this is the objective is for the larger audience yeah? now i think you need to be a little bit savvy uh, had my uh, father-in-law read it uh, and he said oof this is so boring uh, <laughs> I, he is now halfway but, but then if, if but you don't have to be an expert in artificial intelligence not at all so you could read it if, if you could read if you could read spanish uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's the issue so there. we we i think and, and uh, together with idoya who's my my co-author uh, she is a professor in uh, ethics of ai yeah i am a technical guy so it's it's a good compliment. Uh, I think it's very important for uh, people, uh, normal people, yeah, to understand what this technology is, what it's not, what it can, what it cannot today. Yeah? And and then they have kind of instruments to deal with all the information that comes at them about this topic, yeah, which is of all kinds. So to equip them with some knowledge so that they can decide by themselves, this is true, this is rubbish, I believe this, I don't believe this. Yeah, that's, that's the first book. Yeah? The second book, which is uh, I'm finishing now, but will only be published ne next year, is in English, published by Lit uh, Publishing, is for professionals. Yeah? The title is A Data-Driven Company, 21 Lessons for Large Organizations to Create Value from AI. Now, this is, it's not a, a book that explains what AI is in business terms or how can you use it for your business because that hasn't really been explained everywhere and, and, and very well. 
this is a lessons learned uh, book based on uh, my experience and experience of other experts and other practitioners of if as a company you want to take data seriously you want to create value from data so what kind of decisions are you uh, facing in the coming five years yeah, to to make that journey yeah? and those are decisions related to organization related to business related to technology related to people and also related to responsibility yeah? so in each of those areas i have a, a few like three or four chapters that discuss typical decisions where do i put my data department under the C chief marketing officer i put it in it under strategy how do i finance this i finance it from headquarters how do i finance it from the local businesses uh, how do i democratize it uh, so all kinds of concrete decisions and any company that starts a data journey will take those will take those decisions they might be uh, implicit yeah? i don't even recognize that they take them but actually they do take them and it has a lot of impact how they take them at a certain stage of their of their data maturity so it's about sharing that experience so that people or companies who are at a certain stage understand what they can expect next what are the pros the cons and people who want to start can think about okay this is what is coming at me in the coming years so it's about sharing practical experience in something that I believe uh, will be uh, everywhere in every company in a few years. Well, congratulations on both of them. Um, they sound very fascinating and thank you for, for talking me through them. Um, I really appreciate you coming on here today. And just as one final question, I just wanted your opinion. What do you see is the future for AI and data? And what are your hopes for AI and data's future journey? I hope that we understand very well what are the uh, potential negative impacts yeah, and that we act uh, in advance to prevent them. Yeah? Because in some cases it is already late, but in many, most of the cases it's not, uh, not, yet, not yet too late. And so we shouldn't be alarmistic, yeah, but we should uh, do scenario thinking and what would happen if, yeah? for instance, related to the future of work. It's an open question, yeah, what will happen? Uh, we, didn't, we shouldn't talk, all of us, about it, yeah? but a few people should really take it seriously. Uh, and, uh, but otherwise, is learn and adapt, yeah? and try things out, uh, and adapt so that it always goes in the right direction. Absolutely, thank you very much. That was a, um, that's a very good point to finish on, I think. Um, quite positive and very hopeful for the future. Um, so thank you very much for coming on the podcast today, Richard. I really appreciate it. Um, and I hope, hope we can talk again soon. Yeah, thank you very much, Emily. And thank you, everybody, for listening, if you're still with us. I hope so. It was, I'm, I'm very fascinated by this topic, and I, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there as well who would love to learn um, all about this. So, yeah, I really appreciate it.